0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis
1: and beyond. Hi everybody, I'm Michael Kuris. For the 25 million Americans with rare diseases and their loved ones, the journey to diagnosis and treatment can often be long, complex, and frustrating. That's where our guests today enter the picture. Dr. Edward Nealon is Chief Medical and Scientific Officer And Rebecca Ani is Director of Education Programs at the National Organization for Rare Disorders. For nearly 40 years now, NORD has been an indispensable resource for patients and families, medical professionals, and those seeking to develop new diagnostics and treatments. It also supports the work of 300 affiliated patient organizations. Osmosis has had the privilege of collaborating with NORD on nearly 20 videos, which have been very positively received by health professionals and the people in their care. So we're really pleased to welcome both of you folks to the show, and we're looking forward to spending some time today helping our audience understand more about NORD and the very important work you do. So thanks for coming.
0: Thank you.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: So I'd like to start first with getting some career highlights and learn what drew you to the field of rare diseases and to NORD particularly. Dr. Neely, you want to start?
0: Sure. I'm a pediatrician and a medical geneticist, and I really got started on this pathway when I was an undergraduate studying biology, and I got fascinated by genetics, and particularly The great puzzle of how the relatively limited amount of information in our DNA, which is about one gigabyte of information, somehow provides all the instructions for our biochemistry and our embryonic development and some of our functioning. To me, that's an amazing puzzle. We have less than one bit of information in our DNA for each cell in our body.
1: Yeah, that is pretty amazing.
0: And I was also interested in applying that to help patients ultimately. So after college, I decided to enter a federally funded MD-PhD training program, which I did at Stanford University. There I worked in experimental mouse genetics, learning to alter the mouse genome on purpose to see what effects that would have. And I was drawn towards working with children in the clinic. It was just for me fun when they were healthy and impactful when they were ill. And that was a kind of natural pairing with genetics since Many genetic diseases manifest themselves in childhood. So after finishing medical school, I decided I would pursue residencies in both pediatrics and genetics, and I did that at Boston Children's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. After that, I opened a a research lab at Boston Children's Hospital and joined the Harvard Medical School faculty from 2004 to 2016, I was full-time there. I still retain a part-time appointment there, but after serving a term as president of the medical staff at the hospital, I decided to try something else, and I worked for four and a half years in the pharmaceutical industry, again, supporting rare diseases. And in 2021, just over a year ago, I was offered a chance to join NORD which I looked upon very favorably as it represented a return to working purely for the patients. And I also had a soft spot for NORD since back when I started my own research laboratory, NORD was one of the first, in fact, the, the second organization to give me a research grant helped me
1: get started. <laughs> and you never forgot. Oh, that's great. That, that all fits together nicely. And Rebecca, what about your story?
2: So I landed at NORD from a non-scientific route. My career to date has been entirely within the nonprofit sector and began while I was earning my master's in public administration. I sort of fell into rare diseases in my work with Starlight Children's Foundation, where I helped thousands of pediatric patients and families living with serious chronic and often rare diseases. I then worked for the Pulmonary Hypertension Association which is actually a longtime member of NORD's membership network. There, I directed PHA's continuing medical education programs, which had in-person and online components. And I oversaw PHA's patient and caregiver education portfolios. Some of the work I was most proud of was revamping PHA's online educational programming, with professional videography and animatography and improving the learner experience and therefore increasing CME course completion. I came to NORD in late 2020 and I lead the Educational Initiatives Department And we work to grow NORD's educational content and programs for patients and caregivers, healthcare professionals, and students.
1: So even just in the first few minutes, I think people are getting a sense of the footprint of NORD touches so many different organizations and professionals. Very well regarded, of course, in the medical community. But for listeners who might not know as much about it, Dr. Nealon, can you just add a bit to what I said at the beginning and what you folks have said
0: so far? I think it's important to know a little bit about the origin story of NORD, which is tied in with the Orphan Drug Act, which was signed in 1983, after a great deal of advocacy by key founders of NORD. And that Orphan Drug Act has provided incentives to industry that didn't exist before, and has really driven a revolution in the development of drugs for rare diseases. There are many, many times more drugs for rare diseases now than were developed before 1983. In fact, in the last few years, the majority of drugs approved by the FDA have been for rare diseases. So the founders of NORD didn't want to end their efforts or potentially fall apart after that, and so they formed NORD a few months after the passage of the Orphan Drug Act. Nord's policy team is still active in Washington, D.C., defending the Orphan Drug Act, keeping it intact, and advancing other legislative and policy agendas. But we also now have important initiatives in research, education, and patient care.
1: And, Rebecca, on the education front, picking up on that, give us sort of an overview of that effort and, particularly, how much do you direct? your educational outreach toward providers versus patients and families?
2: Sure. So when I talk about the education strategy at NORD, I often describe it as a straddle strategy because we are dedicated to educating patients and caregivers and the healthcare professionals who treat them simultaneously. So our main patient and caregiver education event is the Living Rare, Living Stronger Patient and Family Forum held annually in a different city each year. This is a virtual conference centered on living your best rare life. It offers education and wellness sessions, networking opportunities, sometimes entertainment for people living with rare disease and their families. And it's really a one-stop shop to get information on how to find your people in the rare community, how to fight back or fight forward through advocacy, how to manage your health and cope with rare disease, how to participate in research, you name it. But really this is often the first opportunity that people living with rare disease are in a room with other people who just get it. We also offer online educational opportunities such as our video library on rarediseases.org which is targeted for patients and caregivers. And this is a joint project often with our partners at osmosis where we deliver videos on specific rare diseases which complement our rare disease reports which are part of our rare disease database online 84 percent of nord's website traffic comes in through our rare disease database When patients and families are doing exactly what their doctors tell them not to, and the first thing we all would do, which is Google the diagnosis.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's a double-edged sword for sure.
2: We also, since late 2019 to early this year, our continuing medical education program, which is produced in partnership with Platform Q Health, has educated more than 18,000 healthcare professionals. And while reach is very important to an organization trying to raise awareness about the importance of screening for rare diseases and early accurate diagnosis, along with the breadth of the program, we're also focusing on the depth of the program, meaning what are the outcomes? And our participant evaluations continuously show positive changes in both knowledge and clinical behavior for the healthcare professionals who've participated in our programs.
1: That's great, and you know, sticking with education, Dr. Neil, I want to connect with you on that question because this is a, a constant theme you hear that patients have, as I mentioned at the beginning, these long, sometimes very frustrating experiences getting diagnosed, and it kind of begs the question about what's happening in medical school and medical education. Can you
0: talk to that a little bit? It's difficult to diagnose rare diseases for a combination of reasons. One is the rarity of the conditions. When I was a medical student, I heard, and I believe it based on how thick a medical dictionary is, that the average medical student learns 40,000 new words in medical school. And you also learn a tremendous amount of other information. I remember my roommate, a brilliant fellow who's now a Full professor of neuroscience at Washington University in St. Louis, once walked into my room while we were both studying separately, and he said to me, Ed, I think I finally understand why they want us to learn all this stuff, by which he meant tiny little details about drugs and bugs and bones, and he said it's so that they don't really expect us to remember it all, but, you know, if you see it, you know, maybe it'll come back to you. Mm -hmm. And there is that scope of information. So nobody can really know all the diseases, let alone all the rare diseases, of which they're now estimated to be 7,000. Wow. And the average physician sees a few tens of thousands of patients in their professional career. So if a disease has an incidence of one in 100,000 in a full career, you're probably never going to see it. So the sheer rarity of it makes it difficult. Another thing that makes it difficult is that most diseases either present in a sort of gradual fashion or at least have a milder form that presents in a sort of gradual fashion. So the first time you see a patient experiencing some difficulties due to their rare disease, they may be showing only a part of the picture of that disease. And a few years later, they they may have manifested more fully and it becomes potentially easier to make those connections. So I think that there's only so much that physicians can have memorized in their heads. They have to have, number one, a willingness to be sort of continual learners. And when a patient doesn't have a certain diagnosis that is a you know, well-established diagnosis, sort of go back to the textbooks and try and figure out what it is. The busy schedule of clinicians these days and the way that clinicians are, you know, reimbursed by formulas doesn't often allow time for that. So there's some systematic issues there and I'm sure there can be some improvements in education, but you also have to have some systems improvements I think to give people time to search for difficult to make diagnoses.
1: Rebecca, you want to weigh in on that?
2: Yeah. I always think about this when we are at medical meetings or conferences our booth is always very popular because we give away little zebra stress balls <laughs> and everybody asks why the zebra mascot and we explain that in medical school when taught about differential diagnosis students are taught if you hear hoofbeats think horses not zebras think about what this likely mm-hmm. could be and here we are representing you know 25 million american zebras living with rare disease every day. And so I think, you know, we've got a steep hill to climb in moving the needle, so to speak on early accurate diagnosis because patients and families are often living in a diagnostic odyssey for years and years or are still undiagnosed and have no real patient advocacy home. So we seek to be that at NORD for undiagnosed patients who know they're rare, they just haven't named the beast Mm -hmm. yet.
1: So on the brighter side of things, Dr. Nealon, one thing that has helped a lot with diagnosis is all of the progress that's been made with genetics, which is, as I mentioned, one of your subspecialty areas. So can you sort of characterize the impact that progress has made on helping with diagnosis?
0: Yes. So in 2001, after about a century of trying to map genes and humans and other individuals, the first draft of the human genome sequence became available. That first draft of the human genome cost about a billion dollars and took decades to generate. <laughs> One of the most impactful things today in the rare disease field is that increasingly better DNA sequencing technology means that now for thousand dollars or less, I could sequence your genome. And that means that we now have access, not just to a few well-known genes that are associated with diseases, but potentially to you know, the root causes of all genetic diseases. And insurance companies currently are not always paying for this testing, which is a clinical frustration, given that it can often shorten the diagnostic odyssey. That's one of the policy issues that NORD is currently quite interested in. But I think that's having an impact This A new technology generally is referred to as next-generation sequencing, and I think you can expect many more diagnoses to be made through next-generation sequencing in the future. And the genetic technologies have also now progressed to the point where we can either insert a healthy copy of a gene, so-called gene therapy approaches, or potentially even edit a gene to restore it to its normal function in place, so-called gene editing. These technologies are newer. There are, I think, two gene therapies approved in the United States now, one that cures a form of blindness and one that dramatically improves an early form of inherited neurological disease. But there's thousands of other diseases for which these technologies may be applied in the near future. And I think that's the real revolution, combining rapid diagnosis with gene-targeted therapies that we see on the horizon.
1: And I think revolution is not an overstatement in this case. So, Rebecca, I'm curious about COVID and how that has impacted your work at NORD and also to the extent you can characterize it for us. How has it been impacting the patients that live with these conditions and their loved ones?
2: Sure, so beyond the initial fear of not being able to get their medication or get their medication on time, and the shortages we all knew about early in the pandemic of personal protective equipment. Our patient organizations obviously had to, you know, send their employees home, cancel fundraising events and their normal revenue streams that come in through grassroots fundraising. And NORD was able to assist them with some grant funding to keep their doors open. For the patients and caregivers, first and foremost, what really strikes me to this day is the isolation on top of the isolation of living with a rare disease. Not knowing others, especially not near you, living with your disease, struggling to find a specialist who can treat you, living with the day-to-day burdens of managing your health and coping with life-threatening or life-limiting disease that others don't understand is already isolating. However, I think our community is used to figuring it out as they go. They could not be more flexible because they have had no choice and they take it one step at a time and do what they need to do to protect their lives or protect the lives of their loved ones. I think also, The fear of leaving the safety of one's home was very real, especially for those who are immunocompromised in our community due to their rare disease or its treatments. Many were unable to continue receiving their routine care in the traditional healthcare setting. And once telehealth sort of became the standard across the country, patients and families had to adapt to seeing a clinician that way and get over the stumbling blocks of technical problems and difficulties and work through the anxiety of adapting to something new. And for families, especially without an internet connection at home or the bandwidth required for a video call with a clinician, they had to figure out how to describe what was going on over the phone without body language or without their clinician laying eyes on them. And You know, that speaks to the digital divide we have in this country. Now I think the benefits of telehealth have been made well known, especially alleviating the need for lengthy and burdensome travel for families with complex medical issues and who often require specialized equipment to go see a specialist or even in some cases participate in a clinical trial remotely, which we've been learning a lot about as we go. Telehealth also allows for more consultation between clinicians and or with the patient, which can support coordinated care models and help take really great care of our patients. So I think again, you know, our patients and families were flexible and did what they had to do, but it really has been coping with a lot of fear and isolation.
1: Yeah, those are themes we hear on the program frequently. So, as we're wrapping up here, Dr. Nealon, uh, we always like to ask our guests to provide a little advice to our listeners, many of whom are medical students or early career health professionals, both about getting through this still challenging time with the pandemic, but also approaching their career in healthcare. What do you talk to medical students about?
0: There's no doubt that a career in healthcare is rewarding, but also challenging. And, And there are many challenges, the scientific and technical ones. But there's also becoming, in a way, intimately involved in the lives of other people and helping them during what might be a life-changing illness or moment. Working with families and patients who may have socioeconomic challenges that are greater than your own. And while all those things are challenging, the reward of knowing that you help someone directly, I think makes that all worthwhile. I may be biased, but I'd like to think everybody should become a medical geneticist. (laughs) Um, You know, that's not really gonna happen and shouldn't. We need physicians working in other fields of medicine, but getting back to something that Rebecca said, while you may not remember everything that you've learned in nursing school or medical school or another allied healthcare training program about, you know, rare diseases, don't forget that amongst the many, many courses out there, there are patients whose real diagnosis, whose real problem is a zebra. And if you can just keep that in mind, sort of keep an open mind, I think regardless of the field of healthcare you're in, you'll be doing rare disease patients a good service.
1: Well, that's a really great note to end on. And I want to thank you both very much for taking the time to join us today, but more importantly, for the really important work that you're doing at NORD to support the patients and families with rare diseases who are often going through some pretty difficult circumstances. So thanks very much for coming on the show.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
1: I'm Michael Carice. Thanks for checking out today's show and remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together.
0: For more information on how you can raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org COVID-19. If you like this podcast, Please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org/raise the line podcast.